Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. This is the first episode of our ninth season, and we're focused on the topic of resilience. Being able to bounce back from adversity is a critical skill in being successful in business and in living a healthy, fulfilled life. Our first guest helping us explore this topic is Shannon Huffman Polson. She was one of the first women to pilot an Apache attack helicopter for the United States Army. She is also the author of the book, The Grit Factor. In our interview, we discussed the challenges Shannon faced as a pioneer in military aviation. Shannon also shares what she's learned about developing resilience that each of us can apply in the face of disappointment, defeat, and adversity. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head over to thestarconspiracy.com. Shannon, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thanks so much. It's wonderful to be with you today. So let's start with a resilient story, if you have one to share. One of the stories that I like to share is, is one of the opportunity that I had a number of years ago to be one of the first women to fly the Apache helicopter in the United States Army. And there's any number of stories I could tell around that. But one of the stories that is, is a lot of fun is kind of really early on in that process, but I was still just a college student, just a cadet. I had to report to the state aviation officer in the North Carolina National Guard. And I drove out to the office in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I stood at attention and I saluted. And I, he asked me to sit down and we exchanged a couple of pleasantries back and forth. And then I remember him stopping in the middle of a sentence, leaning back in his chair, looking down his nose at me and saying, you realize, cadet, that you will never fly an attack aircraft. And I recognized his comment in the moment as what it was meant to be, which was small and mean and cutting, because in the spring of 1993, attack aircraft weren't open for women to fly. But I also recognized, although I felt quite concerned in that moment, I recognized that there was nothing to do except to say, yes, sir. And so I said, yes, sir. And I drove back to the ROTC detachment on the campus of Duke University and requested a transfer onto active duty. And, uh, and I guess that's, that's more of a story of being in the moment, but it was really entering into then a, a, an incredibly challenging opportunity that was both absolutely amazing in so many ways, but also full of challenges of this first integration of women into the attack aircraft in the military, which, which required those sorts of situations again and again and again. And when I think of the difference between grit and resilience, resilience is this ability to come back after those challenges, right? And grit is sometimes kind of getting through those challenges and, and both were required for sure. Could you describe what an Apache helicopter is? I'm sure most people who are listening to this have heard of it, but I went on YouTube as I was preparing for this <laughs> and I watched videos and it's an impressive piece of machinery. So an Apache is an attack helicopter. It is uh, powered by two 1850 horsepower jet engines. It is a tandem seated cockpit configuration. So there's only two pilots. Both people have to be rated and they're seated just in tandem like a fighter jet. So one person is kind of down in front and one person is up and back a little bit. But really the power of the aircraft is really meant for to, to carry weapons. It's a, it's a flying and aerial weapons platform, essentially. So we were armed at different times with the 2.75 inch folding fin aerial rocket and the anti-tank Hellfire missile. Underneath the belly is this 30 millimeter cannon, which has high explosives rounds 
And then on the, the nose are three different sight systems that see in day and night and adverse conditions. So it may be different in the newer models, but it was a pretty phenomenal aircraft even back then. So when you made the decision to, that you wanted to fly Apaches, did you really know like what sort of headwinds you would be facing? No, I mean, I think, I mean, it's funny to, to look at something in the past, right? So no, I don't, I don't think I was prepared for the fact that there would be active resistance to my presence because it was nothing that I'd experienced. I'm fortunate in that. There are other people that have had tougher upbringings, but I was fortunate that I hadn't experienced it. And yet that meant that I had to figure that out as, uh, as I went. Tell us about where you grew up and your military experience and what you've been doing post-military. I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska, so not, not rural Alaska. The, the rural Alaskans would, would say that it wasn't really Alaska because it's, it's half of the population in the city of Anchorage, about 250,000. We were out of the city a little ways, but still growing up in Alaska, I've always liked to think that that was that first integration of some of these ideas of grit and resilience, because there's very much the sense that you have to do what you need to do to take care of yourself to stay alive, right? I mean, you, you don't go for a long drive without candles and warm coats and hats and boots in the back of the car, because if you go off the road, there may not be anybody there to pick you up. And, and it also helped to really, really drive home this idea, which, which I also credit my, my parents for, but that as a woman, you can do whatever it is that you want to do. So I'm grateful for that, as well as, as the way that my parents brought up in, me up in a similar way. So I went down to Duke for North Carolina, the biggest culture shock of my entire life. I've never experienced anything like that going from Alaska to Duke in the 19, 1980s. And yeah, it was an English major at Duke, ROTC, and then and going on to active duty for the rest of my 20s. And that was Fort Rucker, Alabama for flight school and for the Apache Advanced Qualification course, because right after I graduated, then Congress lifted the, the combat exclusion clause. And so all of all of the aircraft in the inventory were open to women and men. And I had the opportunity to earn the chance to be able to transition into the Apache helicopter. I served on three different continents. I led three different line companies and then left the military at the end of that time for business school at the tech school at Dartmouth. Worked in the medical device field, actually with a company out of Minneapolis briefly, and then transitioned over to a role at Microsoft Corporation. And then for the past 10 years, I have been writing and talking to organizations and companies around the world, doing keynote address, doing executive level training. And we talk about leadership, grit, resilience, purpose, and storytelling. All of those are, are absolute passions of mine because I really do believe that leadership is where we will ultimately find a better world is through good leadership. The theme of season nine of 12 Geniuses is resilience. And I'm wondering how you define that topic. How do you define resilience? Yeah, that's, that is a, that's a wonderful question. I'm going to hedge by starting with somebody else's answer because I love it. And it's an interview that I did that was going to be for the book, The Grit Factor, when I thought that I was going to cast a broader net and talk to people from a lot of different fields. I ended up kind of niching down into women leaders that were military for a number of reasons we can talk about. But anyway, this was an Everest climber. She was absolutely phenomenal. And she said, you know, I think of grit as the rainy bivouac, right? You're on the mountain, you're, you're, you, you're bolted into the mountain on this, this little cot that's hanging on this wall in the middle of a rainstorm and, and, you know, thunder and lightning and sleet, and you just have to get through it. That's grit. Resistance is more like a reed that bends in the wind and then, and then doesn't break, right? It's able to come back up. And I think that that's a great way to look at it. I have, 
I have defined grit because, of course, I defined, talked about the grit factor in, in the book as, as kind of a, as a dogged determination in the face of difficult circumstances. And, of course, Angela Duckworth says passion and perseverance towards a very long-term goal. Both of them are required for the aspect of grit. It's getting through something, getting through something, you know, not just in the immediate term, but, but over the longer term as well. Resilience is required in that. And I think grit is required in resilience. I, I think of them that really is overlapping kind of as a Venn diagram that overlaps because resilience really is about getting through those things, knowing that you're going to get knocked down, being able to get back up and to continue on, right? It's getting through the hard times and continuing on. Even in your book, you, you say that grit is a quality and a skill, which I find interesting. And, and so I wonder how you distinguish between a quality and a skill, because to me, a skill is something that can be built and developed and a quality is maybe a little bit more innate. What the science is showing, which is that you can build grit and resilience. I think the key is you have to make that decision. You have to be willing to make that decision because that's a conscious effort to be able to take the steps to do the work. And, and at the end of the day, no change happens, no growth happens. That is something that we internalize in a meaningful way unless we make that conscious decision to both take the steps or and or do that internalization. Well, let's get into it because you had mentioned the grit triad and in your book, you talk about eight aspects of grit. So yes. where, do we, where do we start among the triad? The way that the grit triad falls out is, is obviously three parts. There's commit, learn, and launch. And that is aligned, and well, I know we're going to get into each one of these, but is aligned to owning our past. That's that commit phase. We talk about both story and purpose in that commit phase. And that's the place that everything rests on story and purpose. Then we get into the deep engagement in the present. And that deep engagement in the present has to do with building our teams and being part of other people's teams. It has to do with building the art and the science of active listening. And then it has to do with mindset. And mindset is so important that it's part of the triad, but it is also the circle that surrounds that triad. Mindset is also a base component. You, you, you don't get very far without the right mindset. And that, there's a couple of parts to that that we can talk about. And then finally, launch. And launch is this grounded in the past, deeply engaged in the present, looking towards the future. And it's looking towards the future with audacity. That's the willingness to take risks, the willingness to put yourself out there, the willingness to face failure, because we all face failure on the path to success. Such an important message and lesson. Also with authenticity, the willingness to be ourselves, to show up as ourselves. It's the only sustainable way to stay the course. And then ultimately with adaptability. And if the last three years have taught us anything, it's that we all have to be adaptable. And so, and that really ends up rolling into the whole triad. But Whenever you get to a place of challenge and change, you've got to return back to that base of commit. That commit is owning your past, but past is malleable, right? Memory is malleable. Story is malleable. It's plastic. And that's where we get, it gets really, really interesting and really, really important. So how do we know our story? Because I can think of a single person and we could paint a story that is glamorous and glorified. And yeah. maybe not so great for, for this person. So what, what story should we be painting for ourselves to yes. have the, the, the greatest grit possible? When you write your story, you have both the responsibility and the opportunity to take that raw material 
and shape it in the way that you want to go. Now, you have to be honest. You have to be brutally honest and you have to, to deal with what you have faithfully. And, and, and it has to be the truth, right? At the same time, you decide how it is that you're going to understand each of the elements of your story. Is it going to be an example of a failure or, or a crushing defeat? Or is it going to be an example of resilience coming back from that defeat? And so, as you know, at the end of chapter one, I give you a way to look at your storyline or we sometimes call it your journey line. And you go back and look at all of the events from your birth to the present. And you look at those that are positive and those that are negative, and maybe some are both, right? Like going to college, you probably have some of both. And, and then you go back and you assign values to those. You say, okay, what did, I, what did I learn from each of these events? What did I learn that was positive or negative? And what value would I assign to those? And then you start to look for where those values root as well. That starts to lead you into chapter two in purpose. But as you're doing that work, what your opportunity is, and this gets a little bit into some of the skills that we can learn in the mindset piece as well, is instead of saying, gosh, I can never get past this because look at what happened to me, you know, 10 years ago, I'll never be able to get beyond that. Now I'm just stuck. It's saying, this happened, but I have taken these steps and I have overcome this and I have learned how to overcome so that I can overcome the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing. How you, how you frame those challenges, how you frame the defeats, how you frame the successes is everything. You had talked about the five whys in yes. the purpose chapter, and I found that to be really powerful. Could you help our, our listeners understand what the five whys are and how you use them or have used them? So I talk about the five whys as a way to get down to your core purpose in the midst of a situation that you maybe can't control or maybe is challenging or maybe is, is, is disruptive in any number of different ways. And that is to ask yourself why, not one time, but five times. I always like to say we've all heard about start with why, right? And I love that you quoted Nietzsche there too, which is really where all of this came from. But, but oftentimes when we ask why just one time, we, we still get to something that's somewhat superficial. And so I borrow this technique, which was originally engineered by, well, engineered by Toyota for their menu looking at their manufacturing de deficiencies. And they will ask themselves why something is wrong, not one time, but five times. So here we're going to use it to drill down to why it is that we're doing whatever it is that we're doing. And in this particular case, I'm working in the S3 shop. Why was I working in the operations shop? Well, why was I there? I was there to fly and fight the Apache. Why? Well, I was trained to do so. Why? I had asked for, I had earned the opportunity. Okay, why? Because I wanted to serve my country. That's pretty good, right? We drill down to that fifth level or drill down to the level where you are agnostic of the job and agnostic of the organization. So why? Because I wanted to serve. And service was at the heart of who it was that I was, how it was that I had been raised, was this concept of service. It was incredibly powerful. It still is incredibly powerful. It is still part of my purpose. And when you can anchor yourself, to that purpose that is agnostic of the job, that is agnostic of the position or the organization, then you can really tether yourself to that core part of you that will really allow you to negotiate any kind of turbulence. And, and so it, it really is an incredibly powerful exercise. Now, I, I blow that out in Paths to Purpose because I think as you get a little bit older, sometimes your life is a little bit more nuanced. And so I think you have to look at it in, in multiple different dimensions. But that five wise exercise is tremendously powerful as a place to start. 
We've talked about commit. We know our story. We know our values and we know our purpose. Next yes. is learn. So can you walk us through the second part of the, the grit triad? <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, the place here to start for all of us is about building your team. It's about, it's about drawing your circle. It's about the, the relationship. I love that one of your values is relationship because relationships are so critically important to our success. They're critically important to our experience of meaning in life. And, and we want to look at it in a number of different ways, but, but really considering relationships in the context of your both personal and your professional life is a really important thing. I talk about different roles that you may want to look for. You're going to have an intimate, which may be your spouse or partner or a very close friend. You'll also have colleagues. You'll also have, ideally, you find a mentor. That mentor is somebody that is really giving more strategic advice oftentimes. Um, and you may find somebody who is a colleague or slightly senior that can give more tactical advice as well. So those are all roles that are really important to, to really intentionally think about as you structure who it is that is on your team. The other piece of that is being part of somebody else's team. And if, if it, it is just the right thing to do, of course, is to always reach out and reach a hand down to anybody who is a step or two below you, right? But it's also, it turns out, all of the studies are pretty clear that those who do that work are also more successful. So not only is it the right thing to do, you'll also be more successful if you do it. So it is both about building your own team and it's about being part of other people's teams. And, and that's the relationship part that really makes things work. And I think the longer I'm alive, the longer I realize how critically important those contacts and those relationships truly are. In the book, you, you talk about different types of mentors, which I think is really, really important. So you have master of your craft and then you have, you know, someone who's a champion. So you have five, you list five different types. I want to say that one that I have started to consider more intently is a younger person who can mentor. Ah, uh, yes. Because yes. now I've, you know, I'm in my fifties, and so I've, I, I really don't know what it's like to be 25. I don't. Yes. I, I don't have a clue. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm starting to see like I need younger people to serve as a mentor for me. So that's, you know, the first just kind of observation. And I really appreciated that around mentorship because I think it's so important to developing leaders. The other thing I wanted to ask you is what advice you have for someone who's hesitant to ask for help or to find a mentor. And they may see this as, well, I'm exposing myself. I should know this. This is a sign of weakness, but really it isn't. Know that everybody who has ever been successful in life understands that they still don't know everything. And so if you're worried about exposing the fact that you don't know everything, you just have a live long enough <laughs> because everybody knows that, right? We all know that about ourselves and about each other. And, and, and I think when you go into any of these sorts of opportunities, or even if you're exploring them, number one, don't take it personally if, if, the, if, if it's rejected, if your, your, your bid is rejected initially, because People are busy and they have a lot of other things and, and you want to be able to learn how to take rejection in all parts of our lives, right? And continue to move on. But, th but the second thing is, I think when you show that you have done your research on the person, on their areas of interest, and you wanted to look for somebody where you might have shared areas of interest too, right? Because there is a chemistry that can be, that is present in all relationships or should be present. But do your research. And if you've done your research, I think people are very, very amenable to being approached. I know I get frustrated with people who will reach out and be like, hey, I want to write a book. What should I do? And I'm like, and they've clearly done no research. And you're like, well, 
<laughs> you know, I, that's, that's such a big question. I don't even know where to start. And so I'll refer them to, you know, one of a couple of resources that I know that, that address those sorts of things. But if you've done your research and you say, hey, I've looked into this, I've looked at this, 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 and this, and I'm really hoping to be able to develop this, would this be something you're willing to talk about? That shows somebody that you've done your research, you've really been thoughtful about the approach. You're not just kind of casting a, a net and throwing paint at the wall, right? So I would say do your research, be thoughtful about the approach, and, and, and don't worry at all about the exposure, because the, the only exposure you need to worry about is not having done the research. But if you've done the research, there's none of us that know everything. Let's talk about listening like a leader. Our natural inclination, especially when we've been around the block a couple of times, is I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to fix it. Okay, I'm, I'm listening to your question. I'm coming up with a solution. I mean, I even do this with my kids, right? And because it's the natural, we're kind of in a rush to get to the next thing. We're, 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 we're sure we have the answer. We want to provide the value. Listening like a leader takes that entire paradigm and turns it on its head. And it really says a leader needs to go into a conversation. First of all, going to your people where they are, right? Whether it's your kids or whether it's the people that work for you or, or whoever your people are. It's going to your people where they are. It's not saying you're going to come to me in my office. That's, that's not where those, those really good conversations are going, to are going to happen. And then it's asking a question and it's listening without passing judgment, which takes some real discipline, without rushing to an answer, which takes some real discipline. It's just listening. And then the hardest thing of all is the pause. And that's to take that pause before responding. And the harder the information is that you've just heard, the longer that pause needs to be. And if it's really unexpected and really difficult, it's okay. And in fact, it's the right thing to do to say, hey, I didn't expect to hear that right now. Or that's a different perspective than I, I had expected to hear. Or I'm going to have to really think about that. Thank you for sharing that. Could we get back together tomorrow morning for coffee? A pause can be a day. It can be a little while. But the key is, as a leader, is that you're finding your people where they are and you're giving them the opportunity to talk to you and to share those things that are concerning. And it's sometimes it's asking a question and then asking a follow-up question, but it's always giving that space for the answer and not rushing to judgment and not rushing to the solution. And when you do that, and then you come back with a response, which might not be what the person has asked for, by the way, they, it could be that they'll be disappointed. That's okay. The key is that you've really listened. You've taken in that information. You've seriously considered that information. And when you return to the person with a response, whenever that time is, that you show that deep respect and consideration that you've given their perspective. And I think that's what really facilitates that kind of active listening. The studies are really interesting that if you go out and ask the question, but then you don't respond, there's even a, a worse outcome than there is if you'd never asked the question at all. So it's, it's pretty critical that you take, the, the, take it all the way through. Well, I would say that the, the most important thing that I took away from that particular chapter in the book was the 24 by 3 technique which is pause for 24 seconds. And then when you're comfortable with that, pause for 24 minutes. And then when you're comfortable yeah. with that, pause for 24 hours. Yes. Like, that is so counterintuitive to what you want to do as a leader. 
you want to act yes. quickly, you want to act decisively, but there's actual, there's confidence, there's strength. There's a lot of reasons why that pause can be valuable. And so I, I found that to be brilliant. And I was so glad to read that and think about how I could implement that in different situations in my life. What a wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, there are, there are always circumstances, but they are very, very few where you have to be immediately decisive and confident. Right. And though right, they exist, right. right? In the extreme crisis and extreme, like when things are in an emergency, but unless it's an emergency and there's very few examples of that that are, that are truly emergencies, then it's, it's best to employ the active listening technique. It's, and, it, and it is important for a leader to be facile in both. But I think that where we typically have the, where we're typically wanting in, in our skill is in that active listening component. And you know what? It's so interesting is that this came up again and again and again in all of these conversations with senior leaders, especially the general officers. So once they've gotten to that level, they understand that, hey, this is the most important skill that you can have is this skill of active listening. And that was fascinating to me. It was completely unexpected. Now we are at Build Your Resilience, which I think most people would have just fast forwarded and said, teach me how to do this. But if you don't do all the other things, it really doesn't matter because because you're not going to be able to you're not going to be able to build your resilience. So walk us through that, and then we'll get into launch. I know there is some backlash to the concept right now, or there's some some people that are parsing some of the studies. But it's pretty clear that when we teach ourselves, and these studies have been done on both children and adults, when we teach people that the and this is, goes to the neuroscience of the brain, right? That when you do hard things, you get better at doing hard things. Now, you may or may not have chosen the hard thing that you're going through. None of us chose to go through COVID. None of us chose to, to, to go through all of the other things that, that the world has been convulsing with over the last several years and, and continues to experience, right? I, I, you don't choose for tragedy to happen. But when you endure those hard things, you are becoming better at doing hard things. And one of the, way, one of the most recent examples that I absolutely love, I don't know if you're familiar with Kara Lawson, but she is the Duke women's basketball coach. And she's spectacular. You, you've got to look her up. But one of the things that she does is she actually has t-shirts now that says, do hard better, right? Don't ever wait for it to get easier. It's never going to get easier. But when you get good at doing something hard, then you're going to be able to do that next thing that's even harder. And then the next thing that's even harder. So she says, you get good at doing hard better. And of course, she's a coach. She said, I'm not going to make it easier for you just because you learned how to do that. I'm going to keep making it harder. And you're going to keep doing it so that you do hard better. So that is really this concept of a growth mindset. The second part of that growth mindset study is also from Stanford, also partly from Carol Dweck and some additional researchers, was looking at the stress mindset. And this is actually more recent than the book. So this came out after the final manuscript had already gone to press. But it's looking at the concept of, of how stress affects us. And the study was done on Navy SEALs going to BUDS training. There was a group of them that identified that, hey, this is going to be incredibly stressful and I'm just going to have to suck it up. I'm just going to have to get through it, right? It's the grit thing. Then there was a group that said, this is going to be incredibly stressful and that stress is going to make me better. You can guess which one did better. But what was fascinating about the outcome of this study is those who believe that stress would actually make them better, not as a sustainable solution, obviously, but as this, this finite and defined experience, those who believe that stress would make them better graduated at a higher rate, they performed better on discrete and measurable tasks, 
And very interestingly, they had 60% fewer negative peer evals. So they performed better in a team. And I just think that's fascinating. So it's really about the decision of how it is that you're going to approach the difficult situation. Either like, oh my gosh, this is going to crush me or, or making the decision, even if you feel that in the, in the, in the first time, the first moments of, of a difficult situation saying, I am going to use this to make myself better. I'm going to use this to essentially train my mind, to train myself in doing hard things. And when you do that, you will, you will perform at a higher level. It's fascinating. And it's total agency. It's a decision. It's a hard decision, but it's a decision. So that's part one. Part two. Part two is actually my favorite part, which is this grounded optimism, or I like to say measured optimism because aviators don't like to word the, use the word grounded. And that is this idea that nothing, nothing can be accomplished without enthusiasm. I believe that wholeheartedly. And it was very interesting to look at three different independent studies of POWs from Vietnam. Every single one of them identified that the most important factor to their survival and their reintegration back into regular life was optimism. Now, having said that, whenever I give my keynotes, I talk about Admiral Stockdale. And Admiral Stockdale, many people will know from Jim Collins, Good to Great. That's where this conversation was relayed. It was, it was most often read, at least. And, and of course, Stockdale was a pilot in Vietnam. He was flying low over the trees. He was shot down. He was held in the Hanoi Hilton for seven and a half years, which is a helpful perspective on COVID when we think that we've had it tough. And he had his legs broken twice. He was tortured mercilessly. He was in solitary confinement for half of that time. And when he was finally released, they said, what's the difference? What's the difference between those who lived and those who died? He said, it's easy. The ones who died were the optimists. So now this seems at odds, right, with the studies from the Navy. But of course, Stockdale was a stoic and Stoics don't like to acknowledge optimism. <laughs> and so what, when you really kind of parse apart his answer, this is what you have to remember. And this is, this is his final answer. You can never lose faith that you will ultimately prevail in the end, balanced with the brutal realities that you face in the present. You can never, ever lose that faith. You cannot lose that hope. Again, all of the major wisdom traditions have this as, as, as literally a, a, a holy concept, right? You can never lose hope. And Stockdale would say, not from the holy tradition, but from the Stoic tradition, you can never lose faith that you will ultimately prevail. But it's balanced with the brutal realities of the present. It's not being a Pollyanna. It's not pretending that everything is okay. It's not being the toxic optimist that people are talking about. It's, but it is absolutely critical to balance those two things. So the mindset, both that you will grow by doing hard things, as well as this mindset that believes in the end, and there's, there's multiple practices that you can do to build that, but that believes in the end. Those are those two pieces of mindset that in building resilience are utterly and completely critical to your success. We've talked about commit, talked about learn, now launch. That's the third leg of the three-legged stool, the, the grit triad. So take us home and, and talk about launching. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is, this is, of course, grounded in that commit, right? That, that, that owning of our past. It is deeply engaged in the present, which means we're focused entirely on being excellent where we are right now and, and in how it is that we're going to contribute to the world. 
And then finally, you do have lunch. And, and launching is using that groundedness and that deep engagement and then going into the future with this, this audacity, which is this willingness to take risks, which you can only really truly do well if you are utterly and completely grounded in that commit phase. And frankly, have that team and the mindset piece pretty wired as well. So that's being willing to take risks. This is the data on this is pretty interesting because people who are in the minority in the context of a greater majority, so typically women or or other minorities, will often take fewer risks because when they take risks and they fail, they are penalized at a higher rate than the majority is. And that's really unfortunate because it's really critical to take risks. It's also critical for managers to understand that and so that they ensure that they are not following this trajectory, which, which unfairly penalizes the minorities in their organization. So, but on a more general scale, critical to take risks, critical to be willing to stretch yourself and be willing to take on responsibilities that feel in excess of what you're ready for. Again, you, you're going to have your team, you're grounded in your story and your purpose, and then you work towards these, the, the, these audacious goals by taking risks. And that is absolutely critical to our willingness to, it's our willingness to fail, our willingness to face that failure and to, to get up from that failure, going back to the resilience piece and, and get up and be even stronger for having learned from that. Authenticity came up as a really important piece because again, and I was looking, the reason that I looked at women in the military specifically is not because it's for women, if this is for all of us. It's because they faced what is called a double crucible. And a double crucible is both having the challenges of the job at hand, which are extreme, as well as the challenges of integrating into an environment which is sometimes hostile to their being there. So they really had to have grit twice, right? And resilience twice, at the, all at the same time, which is exhausting. And so this is really lessons for all of us in the greatest examples of the deepest grit and resilience. And so I, I bring that up because the authenticity piece really came up particularly for for these women leaders, but this can be true for men as well. And it can be true for any of us, depending on the culture that we're working in, is that we have to be able to work authentically inside of a given culture. Because ultimately, long-term success is only sustainable if you are truly showing up as who you are. And I think this goes back to, for example, the values that you identified for yourself or that each of us needs to identify for ourselves. You have to make sure that you can work within the context of your own values. You, you don't compromise those values. And if you're being forced to compromise those values, then you need to find somewhere else to be because it doesn't allow you to show up as the person that you are and work authentically in a way that allows you to contribute your best to the task at hand or to the organization. And so that's where authenticity is really important. I think a number of minorities and majority fields, and I will also speak for myself, felt like and feel like they have to conform in, in almost unusual ways to the culture that they're operating in in order to be successful. And that's not a good long-term solution. It, it occasionally works in the short term, but even in the short term, sometimes it can backfire as well. So it's showing up as yourself, which takes grit and resilience, right, in the face of a culture that may or may not be accepting of it. And then finally, I think the piece of adaptability, it really wraps everything up, right? It really sort of it, everything in the grit triad builds towards this concept of adaptability. Because at the end of the day, no matter what the work is that you've done, 
We always say in the military that a plan never survives first contact with the enemy, right? You have got to be willing to be adaptable. So there's this, this, this aspect of grit and resilience of being able to carry something through for the long haul, but there also has to be balanced with the willingness to be adaptable to changing circumstances and changing requirements wherever they might be coming from. And there's a bit of an art to that. I just did an interview on, on my podcast, Facing the Wind, with a senior level attorney in big law who finally made the choice to leave, right? And there's this, this question now, of when, when to grit and when to quit? That's what we titled the episode. And, and the reason is because there are times when it's time to make a different decision. And that is okay. That doesn't show a lack of grit. That shows a clarity and a wisdom sometimes that, that, that is hard earned. And at the same time, when I talk to young people, well, because there's a tendency, it seems to move around a lot more with, with, with people that are just starting out. I'll always say you should never leave until you have learned something significant and you have contributed something significant. So don't even think about leaving unless you've done those two things first. If you've done those two things, unless, of course, it's an extremely toxic environment, if you've done those two things and then you do the analysis that, that, that it may be time to move on, that's okay. But you've got to really make sure that you've given that grit and resilience piece a chance to both learn something and contribute something significant. The, the last question I wanted to ask you, and it's for me, it's the most important, is yeah. what are you doing at home to develop children with grit and resilience? <laughs> and any advice you can share there? Because this is, you know, I've got a four and a six-year-old. You have a 10 and a 13-year-old. And you know, this, is, this is critical. I think it's, it's absolutely essential for success. It is. It is. There are so many things. I actually have just typed up my first draft of, of some thoughts on this, and I have a lot of thoughts on this. One is I will tell you it will build your grit and resilience to raise your children. <laughs> I know it probably already has, and it certainly does for me every day. It is the most humbling thing I have ever encountered, and I'm grateful to have a wonderful partner, my husband, to share this journey with, but it is hard. It's hard. You know, one of the things that is, the, the two things and I could I could go on and on about a lot of this. There is a chapter in Angela Duckworth's book on this, by the way. What she suggests is that when you pick an activity, you have to stick with the activity, right? You stick through the season or you stick through the year. As the children get older, they need to do it for more than one year. So that's helpful, general perspective. In our family, one of the things that I have realized, and this is for me an aspect of faith, it's also an aspect of family. It's also because I'm a writer, those things. But And it's the research that I've been doing on grit and resilience is the how critical story is. And I have, I have thoughts on this that could fill multiple podcast episodes. But I think as parents, one of our most important jobs is to give our children their stories. They're going to develop their own stories later. And that's, that's what they're meant to do. But they're meant to do that later. You're meant to give them the stories of who they are, who your family is now. And, uh, and there's some very, very powerful work that's been done around this. But, and I remember, you know, my dad did some of this. My dad's gone now 17 years. But, but saying, we are, using that statement, we are, or you are somebody who does hard things. You, this has to always be positive, by the way. So, or we are a family who does hard things. We are a family that helps other people. We are. And using those statements of identity become ingrained in identity. For us, in our faith tradition, we happen to be Christians. So, it's, you know, stories from the Bible are really, really important. But let's say you're not religious, that's, and which is fine, or you have a different faith tradition. Whatever, whatever it is, finding the stories that represent the values that you want to instill in your kids is critical. And so, for example, 
There's a great book called Forged in Crisis, and it's by Nancy, say her name, Kine, I believe, from Harvard. And it is about five people who are, you know, who have done incredible things. So my son, who has just turned 13, just read the, the fifth of the book about Shackleton. And he's like, wow, did you realize this? And did you realize this? And, you know, Shackleton was a phenomenal leader with incredible circumstances, incredible adventure. There's also Frederick Douglass is in that book. Rachel Carson is in that book. Frederick Bonhoeffer is in that book and Abraham Lincoln, right? So if there's five people <laughs> that you can think of that you really want your children to emulate, those are, those are five pretty good, good representative people. And so you want to make sure, and, and I, we are to a fault, we work to exclude stories that don't have our values because there's too many of them out there, honestly. And really, right now, we're focused on, while we have any input at all, which is about to go away, we're focused on, on giving our children these stories that they will really, because we internalize information in the form of story. So to internalize the values and the stories of who they are, that gives them the place to return to when things get hard. And it gives them the place to return to when they don't want to talk to mom and dad anymore. Right. Part of that is also giving them relationships with other old other adults that they can turn to when they don't want to talk to you anymore. You're farther away from that than we are. But but developing those, you know, over time, I think is also really important. And then the last thing I'll say, and, and I have much more to say, but the last thing I'll say is what drives me absolutely batty about what's happening in, in so many of the schools right now is there's this. It almost feels like fear mongering. There, there's some very big issues in our world today that are very, very serious. But instead of focusing only on the problems, we have to give our children the opportunity to have agency in the solution. So help your children understand that, hey, if climate change is breaking your heart and is scary to you, what's something that we can do to combat that? Because that self-efficacy of taking a step to, to, towards a solution helps to fight the anxiety that is otherwise generated by this fear of what's happening. And what's happening is scary. I, I, I have no issues with, with the science in this at all. But help your children develop the self-efficacy to take steps towards a solution. That is what combats anxiety and ultimately will help them to be more resilient to the long. This has been a phenomenal conversation. Shannon, thank you for your time and your wisdom today. And thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses and thanks to The Star Conspiracy for sponsoring this week's show. We will be back next week when I talk to international risk management expert Dominic Bowen about what leaders can do to prepare for unforeseen disruptions like natural disasters, supply chain interruptions, and cyber breaches. Thanks to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening and thank you for being a genius.